EAG. They're leading the game. What game? The M&A game. The data conversion game. The last 18 years, EAG has helped dozens of EMP companies expedite acquisition onboarding, including the conversion of systems and data, allowing operators to hit even the most aggressive of TSAs. A 90-day TSA? Sure. 60-day TSA? No problem. 30-day TSA? Crazy, aggressive, but EAG can help. EAG has a refined, proven process to help operators integrate acquisitions and is the undisputed heavyweight champ for your M&A integration needs. For more information, visit EAGServices.com. That's right, EAGServices.com. Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Really excited today. You know, Dan, normally I have somebody introduce themselves, give their background and all that. And I figured out that mainly I'm doing that for my mother. (laughs) And what I have found out is that when I go over and see mom and dad, she's always like, well, who was that person? I'm like, mom, the only reason we give intros there is for you. Everybody else knows who everybody is. So... Dan, everybody knows who you are. So welcome to Richmond, to the Audio Realm Studios. Thanks, Chuck. Glad to be here. Now, do you remember when we met? Um, There's got to be a story here. So I'm going to say not well enough to repeat the story. So tell me when we met. Okay. And you can take over the story at any time you want. But it was at the... And I think we may have met like way back in the day when you were at Simmons, but... The first time I remember talking to you for a little bit of an extended time was at the Petroleum Club. Do you remember when we were both talking on a panel and we sat next to each other? Ah, now it is all starting to come back. Keep going. Okay. So anyway, and you did what a really good speaker does. Take their watch off, put it next to the podium so that, uh, so that you can monitor your time and speaking. And what did I do? I have no idea. I stole your watch. <laughs> Do you not remember that? No, okay. <laughs> Great. My watch gets stolen all the time, Chuck. I leave things everywhere. So, um, yeah, and and I have I don't remember what we were talking about. My guess is how good energy was going to be. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I think that was uh, I think that was back. Natural gas was at fourteen dollars an M. We were actually smart. I think I think the audience thought, but it was funny because I I took your watch. And um, anyway, uh, at the end of the talk, it was all like, well, Dan, nice meeting you and all that. And you looked at me and just said, give me my freaking watch back. My watch, <laughs> yes. That's one of the few nice things I still have, actually. Well, I don't think I've fessed up to it, to you ever about it is. So while, while I had your watch, I was actually emailing Maynard, Chad, and all the guys at uh, Tudor Pickering Holt said, I have Dan's watch. I'm holding it hostage. And Chad, of course, thought that was funny. And I think Maynard's response was, 
oh, he really likes that watch. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like both of them. Yes, exactly. So anyway, thank you so much for coming in. The So you and I got into a fight the other night, and I say fight, you know, in quotes. Air quotes. On a Clubhouse. I basically said we're done. Investors are done with oil and gas. They hate us now. They're never coming back. And I said the uh, the the phrase this time it's different. And you had issue with that. I did. Um, and in fact, I I think I I raised my hand or whatever you do on on Clubhouse and and uh, tried to take you to task for that. Um, I'm I'm really afraid in a cyclical business of saying this time it's different because. When you do, you're essentially throwing many, many previous cycles out the window. And um, history has a way of saying the reason a business is cyclical typically doesn't change. And so it always has a different nuance. But when you when you start saying it's different, you're going to miss the signs that it isn't. And you either can't, can't get involved in the bottom or you're over-involved at the top. And so I do think, though, to be fair... There's a there's publics and privates and there's a different rhythm to those two things and it's so much easier for people to get involved in the public side of things and um, so it feels terrible and there's disinvestment and everybody's selling and and energy's a two and a half percent of the S and P it's very easy to change people change their mind they just buy stocks starts with Exxon and tri- trickles down to smaller companies over time. And so that's the area that I think you can see it the fastest. And and we've sort of seen it, right? Energy's doubled off the bottom and folks are getting dragged back in. Um, How and- much volume, trading volume, has done that doubling of the stock? And I haven't looked at it. So, um, I mean, is it heavy-duty volume? Is it light volume, but the price has doubled? Or do you have a feel for that? Yeah, it's, um, it's clearly less volume than we saw historically. So if you went back and looked at total shares traded 2014 at the peak and total shares traded in the last year or two, let's call it last nine months because that's when the turns really come, um, it's dramatically lower. So it's it's off low volume and technical guys would say you need high volume to confirm a trend. So it's still pretty early and pretty small and and energy is definitely off the radar screen for folks, but the inflation commentary is going to pull people back. And the the year-over-year comparisons are starting to get much better, and that's going to pull people back. And um, and the fact that I think the industry's gotten some discipline, and, and so these are better companies than they were two years ago or four years ago or six years ago. So that's the public side, but the, this time it's different question on privates, which may have been where you were going. Um, with privates, I think institutional investors are clearly, um, they're still they're still selling. And so it's pretty hard to buy when you're still selling, generally. Right. And so um, without question, uh, there's a, if we looked back to 2014 at everyone that was involved, quote unquote, at the top, um, I would say two thirds of those people are gone. That's either they're philosophically disinvesting or they're economically disinvesting. And um, and I think it'll take some time for those folks that are still exiting all their private equity investments. They're not re-upping, but their exposure is coming down. And so I think that 
public guys may be coming back over the next two years, and it'll take five or six for the, the private side to sort of catch up with that. And, and my, you know, this time it's different, because I agree with you. I used to hate it when management teams would walk in and say, this time it's different. No, it's not. Nothing cures oil, low oil prices like low oil prices, blah, exactly. blah, blah. You know, the this time it's different is I have three children that have lived literally the greatest life of any three people on this planet. And it's all been fueled by oil money, right? And, uh, I mean... Charlie spent a summer in Barcelona learning Spanish, spent a summer in the Galapagos Islands studying lizards or whatever. I mean, you know, my daughter Sarah uh, does this and that. Kelly, great life. And if you ask them tomorrow, should we get rid of all hydrocarbons? They would say yes in a heartbeat. And it just, I mean, it just feels like people freaking hate us now. And, you know, it's this... It's the carbon, it's the polluting. Alan Gilmer and I talked about it for a while at the Evolve conference with the Digital Wildcatters. I mean, we were out publishing bumper stickers that said Freeze a Yankee and, you know, that J.R. Ewing fellow, that was really a documentary. (laughs) And I mean, so we were really nasty about being rich, you know, uh, the hydrocarbon barren folks. But that's what feels different and that feels real and it feels sticky. Several things to unpack there. I think um, <laughs> first of all, why does Charlie get to spend the summer in Barcelona? Dad wanted to spend the uh, the summer in Barcelona. It is, but it yeah, is go good, ahead. It is good to be a Yates child, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so I think I'd say a couple things. Uh, let's we'll talk about sticky and we'll talk about hate. So let's do hate first. I think you said you know your kids hate hydrocarbons. Um, I'm going to say they're not that educated about hydrocarbons, really, because it's so embedded in their life and they don't get that. And so it's great to, to wave your hands and say, I'd get rid of hydrocarbons until if you, if you had a magic wand and you could do that and all the things that would sort of go away. Um, you can't do that quickly. So that's my key theme around this whole issue is pacing. Um, you can't get rid of hydrocarbons quickly because they're too embedded in what we do. And frankly, they're too inexpensive relative to the alternatives. So the folks that are rich enough to get rid of them um, can't get them out of their life quickly. And folks that aren't rich enough to get rid of them, it's just too cheap to enable economic growth. Well, and I... I tell the kids all the time you want to get rid of you want to put all these companies out of business yeah dad that'd be good for the environment i go stop using their products that's right and you know you can control that yeah and you could control it but nobody wants to do it greta thunberg's doing it right greta comes from europe to the u.s on a sailing ship to make a point right she's carbon neutral making right. that trip um, but it's hugely inconvenient and most folks aren't going to do it practically the, the other one you said is sticky and that goes again to timing. I think that sticky is going to be um, sticky is going to be what we talk about in terms of hydrocarbon consumption, and it's also I think it's going to be hard to move away from this thought that we need to be we need to decarbonize. So that issue has already gotten sticky as well. There's lots of commitments to net zero. Uh, this big IEA report just came out, and so. Um, folks want to do it. We're going to push on it really hard for a long period of time. But this 
the word transition is appropriate because the transition between hydrocarbons, which people hate and more people may hate as we move forward, it's just going to take some time. And so that's that's the issue I keep harping on, whether it's a podcast like this or Clubhouse or the stuff I write or Twitter, is, is don't – you can't afford to be hugely um, – uh, adamant about this stuff because the the time period for this transition is going to be measured in decades. You're not going to get quick results. Well, and, and my, kind of my soapbox when we're in Clubhouse or wherever is along those lines is, and it's not our choice. I mean, China and India have a seat at that table. And so we can talk all we want to about the United States. We're going to get rid of carbon we're going to run on nothing but wind power and solar power and the like. China and India aren't going to accept that. I mean, they want the standard of living we have. They want Levi's. They want MTV. They want Coca-Cola. And all of that's hydrocarbon driven. So I, I, I think our hands are somewhat tied in that we've got two, at least two other partners in this endeavor that we've got to bring to the table mm-hmm. if we are going to transition. Because... We can transition, and if they keep building three coal fire plants a month or a week or how how many they're building, that all goes into the same atmosphere. Uh-huh. And um, China's got a 2060 net zero pledge, but will they? What will they do to get there? I'm I've been reading the IEA's 2050 net zero report, and it's. Um, Thank goodness you did, and I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> some, some of the stats in there about what has to happen to hit these targets is amazing. Um, and it's amazing that, that they can be written with a straight face. It's things like, we're going to have to build uh, a solar, solar facilities equivalent to the biggest in the world. We're going to have to build one of those every day for the next 10 years. I mean, how does that happen? I get it, but if solar is going to go up 20-fold or something like that in the next 30 years, you're going to have to do these incredible things, and that costs money. It takes time, and so China says they're going to get there. we got to watch. Everybody's going to push to do something on the margin. The question is, is it going to be enough? And, and, and the other inherent question is, do we need that? Right. Is it worth is the juice worth the squeeze? Is it worth spending all that money to get the outcome of one and a half degrees Celsius in, glo- in global warming? And I don't know the answer to that underlying question. The world seems to, to think that it is. So watch out because it's going to be a big deal for the next while. Yeah, you know, there, I mean, there are train of thoughts that I haven't studied, so I'd probably be remiss in terms of throwing this out there, but it's kind of what I do. Hey, why not? It's my podcast. I like to hear myself <laughs> speak. Um, you know, there is a train of thought that actually more carbon in the in the atmosphere will be good. Make the planet greener, et cetera. I mean, everybody leaves New York to retire in Florida um, and the like. And that, you know, and the whole premise to that is – particles of of co2 in the air is actually not linear you know at some point that basically you have enough co2 per million whatever the metric is they measure it in and the effects of it actually kind of flatten out as opposed to being linear because you know um and i don't know if there's anything to that 
Um, but I will say this, you know, people just don't live lesser lifestyles, lesser standard of living. We just haven't done that in our history as humans. I mean, everybody wants to give it to their children better than they had it and the like. And so, and I think it's going to be incredibly tough to tell the developing world, no, you don't get to have what we have because we got here first. Yeah. The, the, as I've been reading this report, one of the things I, I take notes in the margin of the pages and, and I keep a, a separate page of kind of the big takeaways. And I keep coming back to, I expect that we will need a crisis to act because typically that's what happens in the world is you need a crisis to act. Uh, whether that crisis is the bombing of Pearl Harbor, right. so we're in the war, or a pandemic uh, to, to change behavior. You, you need people dying before folks get on board with wearing masks, and then you know people start dying and people get on board with wearing masks. So um, I, I anticipate that regardless of what people say around things like climate change and net zero, et cetera, to get to really get everybody on board, to really make a difference, you're going to have to have a crisis. And we haven't had one yet. Um, we've got a lot of people worried. We've got a lot of people saying they'll do stuff. Um, we need a crisis. And I'm not advocating, I'm not excited right. about that. But you're I think not that's, rooting for it. That's just what's going to have to happen. The other piece of this to your, you know, car, more carbon might be better is that may actually be true, but consensus around the world is that isn't true. And so there's the what might be true and there's the what are people going to do. And and I get a lot of heat from people at times because I'm trying to be a realist here. The, the reality is there's a bunch of folks that have decided that net zero is what we ought to do. And and so until that pendulum swings, that's the world that we live in. And so you got to keep looking at the science and understanding, but at the same time, beware this, I call it the tidal wave, right? You either surf the wave, you get run over by it, or you get out of the way. And, um, you know, so right now I think you got to be surfing that wave. Yeah. The, um, you know, I think, I think you're, you're right in that, consensus is definitely more CO2 is going to be bad. Uh, actually, Art Berman, when he came on the podcast, he made a great point. He's like, well, wouldn't you hate to be wrong about that? <laughs> you know, just oops. You yeah. know? And so I think that I think that's a uh, that that's a that's a fair point as well. What do you think has led to the tidal wave? Because, um, you know, we talked about this. Another clubhouse room that you were on is you said it exactly that way. It is a tidal wave. It is not necessarily regulatory government driving this thing. It is literally investors, consumers, companies saying, hey, we want less carbon out there. What Was there a spark that caused it? I don't think you can look to any specific. I mean, and if you had to, you'd go to the Paris Accords in 2015 and say that's the point at which everyone raised this as a global issue. Um, you could look at you could look at the uprising from an individual perspective, and I mean, I, I tease about Greta, Greta Thunberg a lot, but I mean, she's one kid standing in front of the parliament, and then it's a hundred, and then it's a hundred thousand. Um, so there's something that got your kids thinking that oil and gas is bad, and hydrocarbons are bad, and um, 
And I think, you know, the industry, the oil and gas industry has not helped itself because it dismissed stuff for a long period of time and had some questionable operating practices for periods of time. You know, Exxon Valdez, the, um, you know, BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, these sorts of things don't enamor folks of, of the oil and gas business as well. So I, I think ultimately, whether or not it's statistically accurate, you, you know, we also have a bunch of stuff happening globally. You know, these natural disasters, it feels like they're more frequent. Now, maybe that's just because they've always been happening with this frequency, but we've got information flow that's so much better. You know people are getting blown up by a monsoon in, in Bangladesh, and you didn't know it before. But um, I think there's there has been this growing awareness that there's a problem, and maybe it's 2015, maybe it goes further back than that. But I can just tell you in the last two years, it's felt like it's really started to crescendo a bit. I think what we did that was so idiotic as an industry is early on in the days of fracking, we wouldn't tell people what was in a frack, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, it's just water and sand and a little bit of antibiotics, a little bit of the same acid that's on Diet Coke and guar gum, which is you eat every day and ice cream. And so, you know, to think that we couldn't share our frack fluids mixture because it was somehow proprietary and better that to me kind of was one i felt sort of one of those things that uh-oh something shifted here you know they they've found a crack uh-huh. that, that they can get in because we're running around fracking stuff and it led to oh we're polluting the drinking water and all that where if we'd have been more open about it from the front end maybe it would have been celebrated in terms of hey we've got cheap natural gas now everybody's doing well it's actually leading to a reduction in admissions etc and that was one of the things i think i saw that we may have screwed up really big time on mm-hmm. no no question that uh if you had to pick if you called these situations sides that the clean energy side is better at talking about the good things that they do and better at playing offense than than the oil and gas business has been. And the reality is it's an industrial process and it's not always going to look pretty. The outcomes are pretty dang good. Cheap energy is, I think, a very important component of sort of lifting people out of poverty, for instance. And so, um, yeah, I just don't think, I think it's bigger than that though now, Chuck. I mean, it's not just the oil and gas business. It's it's turned into carbon, and carbons, it crosses a ton of different industries. And so it's it's now a bigger, broader issue than just the oil and gas business. I think the oil and gas business stands to, to be different, you know, hurt the most, but it's a bigger deal than that. We kind of talked, make energy great again. I think we're up, what, 35 or 40 percent since the, the beginning of the year in terms of the stocks, albeit on lighter volume. Um, we talked about the tidal wave that is energy transition, and it's coming. I think you said it great in Clubhouse the other night in terms of, you know, it's here for a while, too. This isn't, this isn't a blip. So let's put on kind of investor hats here, and I think maybe there are three buckets to talk about. You know, public investors, then there are the private investors, and then there's the energy transition kind of investing. So... 
you know, I guess looking at public investors, like you said, stocks are up. There's renewed interest there. It's been light volume. Do we see fundamental, you know, billion dollar equity offerings done in this industry in the next 12 to 18 months? Or is this just light buying? Because at some point, oil and gas companies do have to be somewhat in par with where oil and gas prices are, or else somebody can figure out how to arbitrage them. So they generally kind of have to move together. But do we see big flows of, of money, come, new, what I'll call like new money coming into the to the sector here? Or what do you think plays out in the public markets? Yeah. And, and obviously, I don't have a perfect crystal ball here, but back to this issue of it's not. That's why I asked the question and I didn't answer it. <laughs> it's, it's, when, when I say it's not different this time, historically, what happens is commodity prices improve. The earnings of these companies improve and investors follow the earnings. And when I think about how do those earnings play out, we've got more hedging at lower prices than current that will start to roll off. Um, we got a backward-aided oil curve where it's 65 on the front and 55, 54 when you're out at 2025. So I think inherently, as commodity prices move up, and they will, because we have a great structure in place right now. The public companies in the US, which were the big problem in the last cycle, are scared to death. Investors have put them in a box that says, do not spend more money. And so if they're not going to spend more money, we're not going to get much production growth out of the U.S. OPEC's acting well, and inventories are coming down. And so you put all those things together, and we ought to have, given that we've underinvested for the last three or four years globally, we ought to have a period of three or four years where the market's reasonably tight, and not $55 tight, $65 or $70 tight, and the question will be, can we control it to the upside or could it break out on us and, and get away? Um, and that could happen. But um, in a market where oil trades closer to 70 than 50, the valuations are too cheap and the companies are returning the capital. And so all of a sudden that will start to matter. And will we see billion dollar equity offerings? Probably. Why? Because there's a bunch of non-traditional or non-normal owners through all these restructuring. So debt guys have become equity guys and a ton of, of restructured companies. And we'll see them get out. And so I expect I expect they'll dribble some of that out, but there will be offerings. And will new money generally come back to the space? I think it will. I think, you know, $60, $60 oil going to $70 oil and three times cash flow companies will make folks say, wow, this is real. And you add the inflation trade to, to it as well. And uh, long only guys are going to come back. They'll, I've said they'll slink back. Nobody's going to say, I own Exxon. I own Chevron. They're going to they're gonna just own it very quietly and buy a little bit more on the margin. And they may start to sneak into Devon or Diamondback or Pioneer or Schlumberger. And so I think that's how it happens. And because we're coming from such a place of overhang, peak demand is coming, energy transition, et cetera, because of that, it takes a little bit longer than it has historically. Usually it, it kind of gets a bit asymptotic um, on the upside. I think it'll be much more linear. So I think we got two or three or four years where you just sort of grind it out. It may not be as 
good as 40% a year, but it might be. And we might have a hundred percent year in there somewhere. But um, I think we've seen this playbook and the realization is going to be a really long energy transition means pretty good results for hydrocarbon companies over the next three or four years. And that'll be the catalyst. So from the camp of this time, it's different. And yep. I'll, so I'll say this as a statement, but feel free to really more take it as a question, beat yep. it up, uh, say I'm stupid. I think what historically was different is whether – I think it was reality, but it could have just been perception, is that on any given moment in time, oil prices could double. You know, an embargo, a bomb went off, whatever the case may be. And I think there is the perception, although it may be different now, but but it feels like there's still the perception that we've just done such a great job in the United States with shale oil and being able to get it out that we've capped oil prices at 60 or 65. Now, they may bounce up to 70 or 75, but, I mean, that's why when you were talking about 2014 or 2024, 2025, to $55 or wherever the, the strip is. Um, and so does there need to be a fundamental change in valuation metrics, whether that's EBITDA multiples, dollar per MCF, dollar per barrel, whatever we want to say, because you no longer have the optionality that oil prices double in one year and you see the see the, the doubling of the stocks? Mm-hmm. I think there's no question that we now have and we saw it, right? We bombed Saudi and oil barely budged. In fact, oil went down when Iran bombed Saudi last year. Um, so the belief is you, out. You know the, the, the 2019 when the Iranians hit, sent the missiles into Saudi Arabia? and the, That was my birthday. And I was literally sitting <laughs> in Vegas by the side of the pool going, thank you, God. This is the greatest birthday I've ever had. And you're right. Oil budged for 48 hours. Yeah, you got the length of your birthday was the length of the reaction in in the commodity markets. Um, So there's there's a view that there's plenty of oil and there is and it's it's available more quickly than it has been in the past because of U.S. shale. So think that that the perception of tightness of reserves has clearly um, has clearly gone away. And therefore, the likelihood that you get paid on a spike in oil price has has gone down. I, I agree with that, Chuck. I think um, so. You've taken some of the optionality out of the public markets, but we've also taken that out of valuation because I mean, this group used to trade at ten times EBITDA, and it's trading at four times EBITDA, and usually it trades at four times EBITDA when EBITDA is peak. And I don't think this is peak. And so, therefore, we've seen a compression in multiples that's reflective of not just the we've got plenty in the U.S., but also we're not going to need as much. That's the peak demand thing that ties with the energy transition. So this business is not as sexy as it was five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And therefore, we're going to make we, we have probably a more boring industry. It's probably an industry that should be more private than public because you just mint those cash flows and you don't have to worry about whether it's ESG stuff or um, 
bombs in Saudi Arabia, et cetera. But um, so what that says is I think we've taken some of the upside away from the sector, but there's still a ton of upside. So it's worth playing for even if the big, you know, the big brass ring isn't quite as, as sexy as it was. Now, I think what you said is kind of what I've said a long, for about a year now. You know, nickels and dimes now matter, mm-hmm. you know, to this business. And we're just woefully under automated and et cetera. We could spend a lot of time talking about that. But do you actually think we have the management teams and the talent in the public sector to be able to grind out nickels and dimes now? Can we make that transformation? Because I think when I think of the public company CEO, I think of, you know, the swashbuckler, the promoter, the and they could get away with that because any given day oil prices can double. Any given day you could come across a bright spot or there's a shale that's underneath. And now with kind of all of those to the upside, kind of to your point, things that appear to be gone. I don't really see anything on the horizon that changes the business like modern fracking and horizontal drilling and and the like. Do you think we have the talent there to do it? And or could we even attract the talent to be able to do that going forward? Because that's kind of what my worry is. These are, I mean, they're great questions. You're one of the things from one of the podcasts you did early on where you talked about beta versus alpha, right? There's been a lot of beta in this sector and it's attracted folks who play for beta. You know, great, I'm a growth company and I'm going to grow my ass off um, and I'm going to grab more acreage and more acreage. Well, that business model has been changed by Wall Street in the last five years um, and it's seeping its way into the mentality of the company. So I think the answer is we absolutely have the the intellect and capability it's whether or not we have the resolve and the mindset to do it Um, the companies that are more likely to be successful i think over the next 20 years chuck in in let's focus on the upstream because it's a little bit easier um to 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 hit this topic is um just because you can grow doesn't mean you should and and the 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 guys that spend every dime they've got every year building a bigger company, um, that may not be what works. It probably isn't what works in many cases. And so um, whether or not the executives can say, I'm really smart, I can really dig in and focus, maybe you do have to bring in some different operational folks. It might not be the CEO, it's the COO, and it's the operations manager and the facilities guys. can we do it? Absolutely. Will we do it? To be determined. And I think the companies that do that best are going to be the ones that that make it over the next 20 years. You're going to have to spend a little bit figuring out energy transition stuff and whether or not you want to to pivot or try to pivot or do anything there. I think that that's going to be a really tough question. And then your point about bringing in people. I think that's really hard. It's not sexy to work in the oil and gas business. And so you're going to figure out, have to figure out how to do it. Are you just going to hire the guys who can't get hired somewhere else? I, I don't think that's the case, but we're going to, we, the industry, are going to have to spend more time highlighting what we're good at and why it's a good place to be. Otherwise, the, your kids, your teenagers, okay. are going to be somewhere else. So 
It's a big task. It's an HR task and an operations task, and it's a mindset task. And there are lots of smart people in this business. Half half the half the CEOs won't go there probably. So, and I've had this discussion with folks, and I want to get your take on it. Does transparency help in this whole process? And I'll just make up wild stuff. If I ran a public company, I think one reserve report a year is just BS, right? I mean, maybe you should be reporting a reserve report quarterly, um, i.e. something outside of just what your production was for the quarter. If, you know, if we don't have a leasing strategic type endeavor we're doing, why shouldn't I publish individual production data from each one of my wells or something. I just think that part of an investor sitting on Wall Street or in Boston or even a money manager in Milwaukee is, I don't know what to make of this thing, you know? And I've actually thought that if a CEO of a public company put a lot more out there in the way of transparency so that people could actually value it, people could actually critique, oh, you're hitting the numbers you said you had. You could trade at a higher multiple, and that multiple could actually be your competitive advantage to go out and roll people up. Do you think that helps, or is, or is that just they're bigger fish we need to fry in our business? Um, I'd love to see the company that did it because you then would get a market comp that tells you. Um, all the companies believe that, I mean, every company thinks that they're, they have special sauce. Their completion, you know, we're cubing this or we're, you know, wine racking that. Um, so, and, and I partially get that, particularly when you're a new play and you're trying to capture things. But the reality is, these guys are producing a commodity product. And um, I guess what you really want is you want to be the best. You don't want anyone to know your secret sauce. You want to be the lowest cost guy. And you don't want others as good as you. So I can follow why you wouldn't necessarily be super transparent down at the very granular level. But, um, you know, the, the reality here is that, that um, disclosure and forecasts and whatnot are still a little bit black box and um, and it could be better. So it, the corporate finance answer is transparency should be better. And I think we're going to see the industry wind up. This industry is already better than it was. And two years from now, it will be better than it is today because they have to be. When you're competing for capital, you got to do whatever the hell you can. And, and we're certainly competing for capital now. And because this will kind of roll us into the private bucket, we talked publics. Is there's been so much talk on Twitter about you know what's the model for private equity and all that, and I think it's much simpler than that. At the end of the day, what happened with oil and gas companies is they invested capital, and the cash flows that came from that investment was less than one. It was an ROI less of one. I don't think. It was a model type issue of you can't buy and flip acreage or longer holds versus acquire and exploit. I think it was literally as simple as we all had a lot of money. We all bought a lot of acreage. We Even when we figured out the acreage wasn't worth it, you're like, well, money forward when we drill the wells and complete the wells, 
we'll still make money on that incremental amount of capital. And then we did that and we wound up not drilling positive rate of return wells. Because if people were really drilling 25 to 30% rate of return wells, you would one, keep doing it and you would be able to attract additional capital to finance that. You may have a balance sheet problem, you're over levered or something to the effect. So I think, you know, because people, when, when I tweeted out that you were coming on and people were sending questions like, what's the model that works for private equity? And I think the model that would work for private equity is when you invest capital, get a return on it. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's what it was. Make make money, dumbasses. Make money. Exactly. Um, yeah, the the PE model, uh, the world that we're in says that there are fewer buyers than there have been historically, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna say some of the things you mentioned. It does turn out to be you've got to invest in projects that that you're going in costs plus your ongoing costs. I mean, the DCF has to work. And so what's going to happen? What we've said is we don't care what oil price goes to. We've got to run a case in the 50s and 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 weight it reasonably highly because where guys got in trouble, it wasn't it wasn't the math they were doing necessarily. I mean, some guys bought the wrong acreage, okay? So so then right. you had a bad rock and a bad price, and those two things are disasters. The The price issue, if you've got good, good rock and a bad price, bad meaning too high, you can still make a lot of mistakes. And so I think that we have to recognize the cyclicality of this business, which is when things are bad, you don't go down five bucks, you go down to cash costs or close. And so I think one of the questions was was name a mistake that you had, right? We I can remember we made some investments in 2014 where we were really conservative on our commodity price assumption. We were 30 bucks under the spot. Problem was that was 80. Right. You know, yeah. so it's like, "Oh, I mean, we still make money on this thing. We get our returns if oil goes to 80." And we haven't touched eighty, and you know, since almost that very moment, right? So, um, I think that I think that you've got to have con- conservative base assumptions, and and I do think some of the things you mentioned are correct. You're going to have to own these things for a little bit longer. You're going to have to think more like a private owner as opposed to somebody that's going to sucker a public company into buying this later. So, um, I do think. I do think, and that's a re-education of the whole food chain, the the institutional investor, the and that's why family offices, I think, are going to do really well here over the next, call it 24 months, because they're going to own an asset, and if they own it for 10 years, fine. If they own it for 15 years, fine. If they're making the numbers, good enough. That's historically not been the way that institutional investors and private equity guys have played it, and so you can get caught in the wrong you know, you can get caught in the wrong cycle. So sort of circular, being circular around your question, but um, you're right. At the end of the day, make money and people will give you more money. Yeah. We haven't made money in the private side of this for five five years probably. Yeah, no. Uh, and the, the other thing I don't think that EFT appreciates in this world, and it's going to sound like I'm total homer for the private equity business, which... Okay, I am kind of, you know, even though they kicked me out, uh, I, I still am. But, you know, p- 
part of the overcapitalization of the industry was driven by institutions, endowments, pension funds, et cetera, that needed in their portfolios to have an allocation to energy. And they needed whatever it was, 10%. There was an element of alpha. This is the shale revolution. We're going to make money here. But there was also a dose of inflation hedge. This is the hedge against GDP growth. Uh, to some degree, because at the end of the day, oil is transportation fuel and transportation is GDP, et cetera. And so, you know, to some degree, I don't want to say that that skewed us looking at a deal going, well, we don't think this is a good deal, but we'll get money to work. But there was an element of that because your clients that gave you the money wanted the money invested over two to three years. I mean, that was that was part of your job because they had actually run the scenario where oil went down to 40, right? And their portfolio needed exposure in case oil ran to 120 again. So th- th- there's some element of that, that that I don't think EFT appreciates um, in, the, uh, in the mix. What's interesting, though, is you would think those principles would still apply today in terms of some sort of allocation uh, to energy. But I think what happened is people said, "Okay, we need 10 percent allocated to energy. And the way we do that, because you don't private equity firms became the de facto way of getting exposure. They don't call all the money, you know, they don't call all the money. Time zero. So if we want 10 as an exposure, let's commit 20 to private equity because they'll call so much over time, but they also sell. So our net exposure will be this. And boy, when the flipping things quickly and then calling slowed down, that 10% kind of uh, exposure turned into 20 really quickly with no end in sight, you know? And so. Kind of to your point, that's why I think the private foundations endowments, i.e., that I dealt with on my side, are all sitting there saying, "Well, we're still way overexposed to energy, and we haven't even we're not even talking about our previous ten to twelve percent target now getting down to three to four percent. We're talking about historically, we're still still levered to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have the whole." university board saying no hydrocarbons bad we're not going to vote for it you also have the chief investment officer even if the board would do it saying i'm way in over my skis on energy so it's a when we look at what went wrong right if we do the post post-mortem here um we're we're all victims of our of the incentive systems that were created by all of us, right? So I've, I'm doing a presentation right now that that looks at where we're at in the sector, and I say there are four pillars for things to get better. One is the economy can't tank, or COVID has to actually go away like we expect. Um, no variant popping up in India because we don't have it under control. Right. Yeah. GDP's got to recover, so we have to kind of we have to have an economy that's supportive. You have to have investors that's, that keep disciplined. You have to have companies that keep disciplined. And the fourth pillar kind of falls out of those three, which is oil price has to be good. And when I think about the postmortem, to your point, you're saying 
man, Twitter doesn't understand that that investors were part of this issue. It's not just private investors. It, it, it's not just institutional investors. Everybody in the world was pouring money into this space. Public investors, you know, there were equity offerings that were oversubscribed big time. People could not get enough of this because we were we were investing in an industry that was going from 5 million barrels a day of production to 13 million barrels a day. That's called growth, man, and people want a piece of it. And so it investors, institutions, this is awesome, man. We're making money. And, and for a period of time, it was the returns in private equity that were pulling in the capital. It's like, hey, did you see you know, in-cap fund, whatever it was, that, that was a three-bagger. I want some more of that. And Let's so, mention Silver Hill. Given that it was the best deal I ever did. That's yeah, right. Exactly. There you go. How, how do I get more cane? You know, <laughs> how do I get more involved? And so, so performance of public stocks, of private equity, of production growth of these companies, like, holy cow, I want more of this. They're telling me I can grow a lot. So the money poured in, and guess what the companies did? They spent it. That's what they said they were going to do. We're going to spend it. And so... This is back to my cycles repeat. We shouldn't be surprised. We had a growth opportunity that we overcapitalized, period, end of story, and everybody was at fault. And so right now we're in the discipline phase. I'm not going to do that again. And so institutional investors and the public don't really care that much about energy. Along the way, what crept in? ESG, energy transition, peak demand. And so we have that overhang combined with the I'm, I'm not ever going to do what I just did, which is give this industry too much more money. The companies are saying, holy cow, I've got to be smarter and better. And so, right, this is the terrible analogy. I'll use it anyway. I mean, the, the alcoholics are on the wagon and there is no more sort of dramatic, supportive, enthusiastic person about sobriety than someone that's just, you know, gone to AA for the first year or something like that. So probably we don't want to use this in the podcast. Terrible, <laughs> terrible analogy. But this industry, we're drunken sailors. And now, again, in that same presentation, I show the, the stern grandmother, right? The stern grandmother, it's the institutional investors, it's the companies themselves. So we are, we are in the phase where if people need this product, which they do, the supply side's being moderated by all of the sins of the past. So this should be a great time to either deploy capital because others aren't, and it should be a great time to own the assets because people don't want them, I think. So everybody, how cool was that? Dan Pickering was in the house. Next week, we're going to drop part two of the podcast with Dan, and we're going to cover energy transition investing. We're going to cover his new venture merge helping fleets go electric and we'll also go through the lightning round of questions from eft including what color speedo do you like to wear see you next week <laughs>